you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn it first John chapter five. As you're turning there, let's just recap briefly. Last week we said this. We said that Christians love others. Christians love one another specifically because of their connection with the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit spurs believers on to worship Him and then love one another. And in our text last week, there was a specific goal, I think, that John had in mind. Two, in particular, actually, are the accomplishments of the love of the triune God. And it's, number one, confidence on judgment day. That's what John says. And then also freedom from fear. So confidence is the thing that everybody wants. Confidence on judgment day. And the freedom from fear is the thing that everybody wants to get rid of. We want to get rid of fear. And John made clear that we don't earn or even initiate God's love for us. He said this at the end of chapter 4. He said, we love because he loved us first. He willingly took the initiative to us. And then his love for Christians motivates our love for others. Today in our text, John is going to continue writing to two groups of people. There's two groups that John is specifically writing and addressing in this book, especially in our text today. And they are those are the people who say that they love God and who are a part of the church, but they prove that they're not by their lack of obedience and by their lack of love. That's one group that he's talking to. The other group are those who, who show their love and show their obedience to God by their enduring love and continued obedience and faith. So to say it more simply, John is writing to people who talk the talk, but he's also writing to people who really walk the walk. Which group are you in? Let's read our text. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we obey, or when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Pray with me one more time. Lord, there are many here listening who have been born of you, and there are some who have not. If nothing else today, Lord, I pray that you would make that clear who is who to ourselves. That I would be able to walk out of here to finish listening today and know whether I've been born of you or not. Make it clear, Lord, so that we can then address the main issue in our hearts. That we would give ourselves over to Jesus. May it be today. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, I hope that you can tell as we've been working through and studying through the book of First John, he specifically wants believers to react in a certain way. He wants Christians to have assurance of their faith, assurance that they really are children of God. And in chapter 5 especially, he starts to ramp up that effort. 
He was doing this specifically because there were people in that group that were trying to deceive true believers that their faith wasn't real. You can see this back in chapter 2, verse 26. This was something that John was warning against. And so he begins this chapter in kind of an interesting way. It's different, and Jason illustrated that with the kids. Every other one had started off with an if-and-then statement, and this one was a little bit different. This whole book so far, John has been slimming down what it really means to be God's child. He's been sort of narrowing and tightening our ideas about what Christians believe and then what Christians do as a result of that belief. And in verse 1, he throws out this really broad term, everyone, everyone. No one is left out from what he's about to say. If you claim Christ, this everyone is you. You are a part of what John is about to say. Every single person who's been born of God will believe what he's about to say, what follows. Because if you don't, then John would still consider you part of the world. Everyone who believes, look at verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The word that there highlights, underscores, that saving faith has a particular content. Complete and wholehearted trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's the goal of saving faith. A person has to believe and confess that Jesus is actually God the Son in order to be saved. There's no way around it. Notice something else here. John says this person has been born of God. Every person who believes this about Jesus has been born of God. So in order to believe, a person must be born of God. John already said the same thing in his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 11 and 13. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's that term again, children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're not born because you wanted to be born, both in a physical sense or in a spiritual sense. You're born of God. John, back in chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 John, has said, whoever, lo- whoever loves has been born of God. So this idea is important to John. John is saying that a person must not only be born of God in order to believe, but they have to be born of God and they have to love the Father before they can love whoever has been born of Him. There's an order of of things here. A person has to be born of God before they can believe in or love God. And a person has to be born of God before they can then love others. This helps illustrate a principle It's important to understand that regeneration precedes faith. You will not exercise faith if you have not already been born of God. But it's not just a past tense kind of belief, right? We need to understand that. You can't just say, yeah, I believed all of that when I was a kid, so I'm good to go. I'm great. You know, don't, don't 
talk to me about all these commands and rules and burdens of the Bible and what God says. I believed all that. It's not an, it's, it's not a big deal. It's good enough. I'm just going to go on and live my life. No. John says whoever believes, true belief is an ongoing continuous action. Every moment, every day, we continue to believe. The idea is that genuine believers will keep on believing. They don't stop believing. Any Journey fans out there? I was thought maybe somebody. Don't stop believing. Uh, Adrian Rogers says it better than Journey. He says, the assurance of my salvation comes not from the fact that I did trust Christ, but that I am trusting Christ for my salvation. John's not teaching that you have to be justified over and over again constantly here. He's agreeing with Paul that the Christian life is like a race that has to be run to the finish. In his commentary on 1 John, Daniel Aiken says something important and helpful. He says, being born of God looks to the work of God in transforming our hearts. Believing in Jesus looks to the human response as we hear and believe the gospel. Jesus didn't come to die on a bloody cross to make us kinder or nicer people. He came to dramatically, personally, radically, and eternally transform us and make us new people. It's by the new birth that he accomplishes this glorious work. Therefore, as John said, you must be born again. Have you experienced the new birth? Are you trusting in Christ today? For salvation, the evidence of whether you are or not is made clear in the next verse. Look at verse 3, or sorry, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. We show evidence of being born of God when we love his children, when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We show evidence of loving his children when we obey God and when we love God and obey his commandments. You see the connection that John is putting in this? Did you realize that you love other Christians best when you obey God? This whole book has been written in the context of the church, of brothers and sisters, of children of God. So let me put it in that context. Did you realize that you love the church when you obey God? That thought has been incredible to me this week as I've thought about these things. We often ask ourselves, and, and rightfully so, how can I love my church better? How can I serve and love and care for brothers and sisters in Christ more consistently, more fully? John gives us a starting point for this today. And it's clear and it's not complicated. Love and obey God. Not only does this demonstrate genuine salvation, but loving and obeying God directly benefits the church, one another. How? <clears throat> you might be sitting there, okay, how does that work? Well, when you see a brother or sister in Christ, in the church, and they're, they're giving up their rights, their privileges, whatever, whatever it might be, and submitting to the will of the Father... You're encouraged to do the same. And 
when you see and hear brothers and sisters singing praises to God, even though you know some of the deep hurt that they're experiencing in their life and they're choosing to worship anyway, doesn't that inspire you to do the same? I think it does, and I think it should. When a brother or sister obeys God and confronts me and my sin, I'm reminded that there's forgiveness and restoration at the cross. Their tough love to me in that moment is the physical manifestation of the love of God. When you obey God's commands, even when it's difficult, even when it's costly, when you obey him, you're showing godly love to your fellow church members. Our love for God and our love for truth both prove the love that we have for one another is real and genuine. John specifically emphasizes this last point in verse 3. He says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That displays that your love is not just word, it's not just talk, but it's in deed and in truth. Christian, when you obey God, you display love in action. When you obey him, other people see that love played out in action, in real life. When you love God, you will keep his commands. And keeping his commands involves loving others. Danny Aiken again says, Our love for the Father inspires and motivates us to love those he loves and to love them as he loves us. Now, the end of verse 3 gives the Christians some pretty great insight into how they should feel about obedience. We sang the song this morning, Trust and Obey. And we sing it, and it's in a nice tune. But when you go home, maybe you get up for work tomorrow, and you get out of the, on the wrong side of the bed, obedience doesn't seem quite as pretty and easy. So what do we do? Well, turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 7. This is how we should feel about obedience. This is David writing this, who saw his own share of struggles, times of depression and darkness. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, just whenever we read a word for law or command, look at how he's describing it. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's how we are to feel about, the, about obedience to God. Now, let's be sure that we keep First John 5, 3 in its context. I don't think John there in talking about the commands is referring to the fullness of the moral law given to Moses. I don't think he's talking about the ceremonial law, which imposed a bunch of difficult and burdensome things on the Israelites for a reason. Specifically there, I think John means the necessity of believing in Christ as the Messiah, 
as illustrated in verse 1, and also loving the saints as seen in verse 2. Those are the commands that he's referring to here. John has already fleshed out what this kind of love for God looks like. He's already done it for what the love of others, love for others looks like. It's continuous belief in Jesus Christ, steady devotion, maybe not perfect, but continuous, steady devotion. Love for one another and love for God looks like consistent involvement in the body. Love for one another that leads to action. Right, If you see your brother or sister in need of worldly goods and you have it and you don't do anything, how is the love of God in you? Your love means nothing in real life. It's not being put into action. For the believer, these kinds of things, they're not a burden, though. They're joy. They're a pleasure. That's what John says. He says they're not burdensome. Now, I don't know where all of you work, but I, I know that a lot of you work in the world and in, you interact with worldly people regularly. And when they find out that you're a Christian, sometimes they have questions they don't understand. Maybe you've heard some of these things before, but the unbelieving world looks at Christians in regards to obedience to God and they have questions like, you mean you really just give some of your paycheck away? You, you actually help pay people to teach you the Bible? You really give up hours of your week, your free time to go to church. And some of you even give up even more because you're teaching and leading stuff at church. You really do that? Wouldn't you rather just sleep in on Sundays? Couldn't you use that extra money instead of giving it to the church? Isn't that all just such a burden to you? But for the Christian, these things aren't a burden. They become a joy to the believer. In fact, obeying God's commands, I think, are expressions of worship. They're actually a delight to the Christian because they engage the Spirit of God that's in us. Now, moving into verse 4, let me point out that John intends us to connect obedience with overcoming the world. Those things go together. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Those who have been born of God overcome the world is what he says. The word for connects them. John wants to assure us, his readers, with this truth. If you are born again, if you are born of God, you will overcome the world. That's a joy for the believer. John uses the phrase the world here the same way he used it back in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, when he contrasted the worldview perspective where God is king with the worldly perspective where mankind is king, where we are the most important thing. The one who seeks after this world and its desires, as we've already said, actually loves the things that God hates. That person devotes their lives to things that ultimately just lead to death and are gone. But the one who seeks and does the will of God loves what God loves and they abide forever. Their love for his children proves it. Their obedience to his ways and his will proves it. And John get right to the point at the end of verse 4. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. So boiled down, 
to its simplest form, a believer's faith is what overcomes the world. But it's not, it's not faith in our faith. Faith as the object of faith makes no sense. But if Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, not only does it then make sense, but it changes everything. The world is caught up in two things. Think about this with me. The world is caught up in two things, what they don't have and what they do have. Wait a second. How does that work? Well, think about it with me. If they don't have it, they want it. And they do all kinds of ungodly things to get it. And it becomes idolatry and covetousness. But if they do have it, then they're prone to boasting about it, which then also is idolatry and pride. But for the Christian, that spell has been broken. That's not what we live for. We don't get caught up on what we don't have and what we do have. Because all we really have is Christ. We aren't bound by the desires of this world any longer. Our blinders have been removed and we don't just live for stuff anymore. Instead, God has given his children new affections and new loves and faith gives us the eyes to see them. That is why faith conquers the world and its mindset. Faith sees that Jesus is better than the stuff of this world. Infinitely better. By God's grace, a believer's eyes have been opened through regeneration or the new birth to see that Jesus is better, to believe that he's better. John Piper says, better than the desires of the flesh, better than the desires of the eyes, and better than the riches that strangle us with greed and pride. That's how we see Jesus. He is better, and faith is the victory then that overcomes the world. Now, John closes this section in verse 5 by coming full circle back to some of the things he said in verse 1 and connecting overcoming the world with belief in Christ as God the Son. Who is it that overcomes the world, he says in verse 5, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everything we've talked about this morning hinges on a person believing that Jesus is God's one and only Son. You can't be loved by the Father. You can't love the Father unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ and has been born of God. You cannot love others, you cannot obey his word, and you cannot love his commandments. You cannot have overcoming faith either if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. This kind of belief, this kind of faith is very specific, particular even. It's also persevering. The one who truly believes will continue believing. So believes here is a present tense verb that shows continuous, ongoing action. We continue to believe. Remember, as I said before, this is not a one-time belief. I did it then. It's I am believing. Do you want to be an overcomer? That's kind of a big word in the last couple of years. Songs written about it. It's plastered on mugs and placemats. You want to be an overcomer? Have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He redeems, He restores, 
He conquered death and he covers sin. And his word brings life. It brings liberty, freedom. Listen to John 3.36 with me. Whoever believes in the Son, so there's that word again, believes. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, there's the word obey. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God remains on him. You can see again here, this is John back in his gospel, you can see him making that direct relationship between obedience and belief. How can you obey God unless you believe him? How can you believe unless you've been born again? God promises that he's going to rescue anyone who believes on his son. And it's proven by their obedience. Call on his name for salvation today. And when you do, his commands aren't burdensome anymore. They're not heavy. They actually make you lighter. Believer, your faith overcomes trials, temptations, lusts, snares, false doctrines, false teachers, Satan himself. It's not faith in your faith. It's faith in Christ. And it's not just a one-time repetition of a prayer. It's not relying consistently on your own ability. Remember, the object of your faith is key. Where is your faith resting today? That's just the question I want us to think about as we close this morning. Where's your faith resting today? On your own ability? On your own power to do? On your inward determination and resolve to just do it? Or has your faith found its resting place in the everlasting Son of God? Let's pray. Lord, our, our faith can find a resting place in you. Despite all of the things that this world says is important, and stresses to us and imposes on us. And we sometimes get to think that the things that we don't have or the things that we do have are the most important of all. Thank you for your reminder this morning that that's not most important. Christians have been set free from that spell that's put on the world. We see the truth that all we really have is Christ. And all we really need is Christ. Lord, I pray that we would, in the way that we live, connect love for you and obedience, belief, faith, and obedience. Lord, obeying you and your commands, it's, it's not a burden. It becomes a delight. It becomes a joy to us. And I pray that that would be the case for us this morning. Lord, I, I would also ask that we would see and understand the connection that's there of how our obedience, about how my obedience actually informs, encourages, and builds up the church. But the flip side is true of that too. Lord, I can injure and harm my brothers and sisters when I disobey. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would discipline us as needed this morning drawing us closer to you through your son 
so that our example and light to the world is as bright as it, as it ever could be. I pray that you would continue moving in our hearts now as we sing and as we reflect on what you have said to us today. In Christ's name, amen.